Marine Corps teaches you many things, honor, courage, commitment, integrity, leadership, but moral courage, you know, moral courage sometimes is tougher than physical courage. And the Marine Corps teaches you moral courage and they don't get much credit for that. Hot technology companies tend to be based in Silicon Valley. They tend to be founded by eager undergrads or Harvard or Stanford Business School alums. And these days, their leadership tends to lean strongly to the left politically. Bandwidth is different. Bandwidth is a business communication software company based in Raleigh, North Carolina. Co-founder and CEO David Morton served in the Marine Corps and went to law school. And he doesn't hide his Christian faith. While he says he also encourages his employees who have different belief systems to be authentic at work, too. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to do that, but there are all kinds of great ways. Mainly what I want you to do is subscribe so this gets to you automatically. One less thing to think about. Bandwidth had its IPO on the NASDAQ on November 10th, the day before Veterans Day and birthday of the Marine Corps. Morkin timed it intentionally. The company is now worth more than $300 million, and Morkin is determined to keep it independent and based in North Carolina. We talked about how the Marines prepared him to be an entrepreneur, why he believes student debt is a drag on the country's future, and how he handles today's divisive culture wars. Here's David Morkin. Bandwidth. How'd you guys start it? How do we start it? So I was in the Marine Corps. When, when you started it, you were in the Marine Corps. I had 90 days of paid leave at the end of my service. Chriselle and I moved in with my parents with our fourth baby on the way into a duplex. We were all on the same side of the duplex. And that's how we started bandwidth. And in a spare bedroom in that duplex, I started really um, in a modest way, making 2% commission for generating leads at the bandwidth website for internet connectivity for small business nationwide. Hmm. About two years into that, um, Henry and I joined forces after I had one day climbed under my desk and prayed to God for a business partner about a year and a half into starting bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And the next day, an article came out on me that I had not anticipated by Forbes ASAP and it highlighted bandwidth trading and what I was doing and that was the day after I prayed for a business partner and I couldn't, John, hang up my phone without it ringing again. <laughs> and these were people from New York City who were interested in trading bandwidth like electricity, which wasn't what I was doing. Okay. And what year is this? 1999. So this was in 2000. Okay. Started the company in 99. and. One of those people who called that day was Henry. And in, within a minute, I knew this is my business partner. How'd you know? You know, Chrishell and I met, and we were engaged 27 days later. <laughs> Henry and I had a conversation, and we were business partners within weeks. So how do you know? I had total conviction and realized it was an answer to prayer, that he was the answer to prayer. So what did you think bandwidth was at that point? What I thought bandwidth was was a small business. Uh, it was an opportunity to create value and to serve people who, in a very, very inefficient market, couldn't figure out how much it costs to get internet connectivity to their business location. Hmm. Real simple. Now, at the time, yes, I had a, 
desire to make a difference and 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 grow. And I think all businesses are either growing or dying. There's not <laughs> much not much in between. But I had no idea what we'd do next or how we'd do it. Just knew that I'd put one foot in front of the other. Now you had been to law school. You had <clears throat> served as a judge advocate in the Marine Corps. That's correct. And then you started a tech business? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Isn't that a bit of a left turn? It was. In law school, I had studied for exams in the engineering lab in 1993, 94. Mm -hmm. My younger brother was at the Naval Academy, and the only way we could communicate was through the engineering lab computers on the early web, the mm. early internet. Yeah. And so having discovered the web in 94, I actually maxed out a credit. This is before I got called active duty. I maxed out a credit card, bought a SunSpark 5, leased a 56K internet connection to our living room for 1500 bucks a month, <laughs> and cold called 600 mutual funds to sell them an online prospectus, and only sold two of them. And uh, so it's self-taught programmer, developer, database administrator, um, in order to make it work. Wow, so you were doing a lot of things at once. I was. You and your brother both in the Marine Corps. Uh, he was Navy. Oh, okay. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps. Military family? No. No? Uh-uh. How'd you both end up in Desert? I, was, I went to Oral Roberts University undergrad in 1991, my senior year, is when uh, Desert Storm happened. Mm -hmm. And that made me realize, if you're going to serve, it's now or never. And so signed up for the Marine Corps in a day and uh, went to OCS after that summer, right before going to, to Notre Dame Law School. So it was just an, it was conviction and calling again. This is what I need to do. I need to go serve. What'd you learn in the Marine Corps? Many things, many things. Learn how to lead, how to suffer. Um, the Marine Corps, and it's the Marine Corps birthday today, mm -hmm. November 10th, uh, 1775, my Marine Corps came alive. And the Marine Corps teaches you many things, honor, courage, commitment, integrity, leadership. But moral courage, you know, Moral courage sometimes is tougher than physical courage. And the Marine Corps teaches you moral courage, and they don't get much credit for that. What's the difference? Moments ago when we were at NASDAQ, and I have the whole team in Raleigh and Denver on closed-circuit TV, and I've got the team here celebrating, moral courage is on that NASDAQ floor uh, asking everybody to bow their head while I thank God for everything. Mm. Not sure that's ever been done at NASDAQ, and I'm not sure it'll ever be done again. <laughs> but that's an example of you got to be who you are and boldly step forward, and that's moral courage. You said you learned how to suffer. Yeah. I think usually when people think of suffering, they think of it as something that happens to you, not something that you learn how to do. So what do you mean you learned how to suffer? Wow, that is good. You're right. You're right. Uh, suffering, suffering is often something you choose to do. And I don't think anything worthwhile, I don't think anyone's calling is going to be something that is without suffering. But you're right. If you let suffering be just something that happens to you, you're being a victim. Hmm. And my, uh, my view is don't be a victim, but choose roads along which you're going to have to bear down. So I love your distinction there between passive and active. You're right. How does that affect the way you lead a company? Because you know, you've, you've laid out a number of concepts, moral courage, being who you are, learning to suffer, that uh, are great in abstract, 
But when you're leading a company and now a public company, people from different belief systems, there are all kinds of challenges that come with that point of view. Yeah. We've grown out of our own cash flow. We've been bootstrapped and you gotta have patience. Hmm. And operating without resource is a form of, for a capitalist, suffering. <laughs> you're, I, there's a funny saying, if you do a lot without much for long enough, you'll be expected to do everything with nothing eventually. <laughs> and that's, uh, some of the things we ask our team to do without resource is, are tough, 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 tough. So it gets concrete in a business context when you've got a tough mission to achieve for a customer um, and you realize you don't have all the resource to get it done, you gotta be creative and you gotta be patient. So we, we're 18 years into this mm. and that road is a road that takes patience and endurance and some suffering. You used to be called bandwidth.com. We did. You dropped the dot com. Yes. As many have. Yes. Why? We do so much more than a website. Um, we're known now for a software platform and a network. And so it's, it's easier and simpler and, um, and fresh to just be bandwidth. Mm -hmm. And you're in North Carolina. Raleigh, North Carolina. Now, Research Triangle's got lots of great uh, tech resources, tech anchors. I mean, IBM's facility there, among others. Apple's got data center stuff out there now. Yeah. Um, That's right. Just a, a, a lot of tech. But did you have to make, at any point, a conscious decision to stay? We... The reason why your question is really interesting is we said no to M&A, to merger and acquisition opportunities over the last 18 years, five times. Mm. And the reason your question is interesting to me is because in each of those, several of those were clear we'd stay in Raleigh, several we probably wouldn't have. So we didn't move forward with any of those acquisition opportunities, so it never became a question we had to answer. But we have been able to grow, John, in Raleigh because the vibrant environment of universities all around us and Research Triangle Park companies, and now, frankly, downtown Raleigh companies. So Red Hat, mm -hmm. Citrix, they're not in the park. They're downtown, and we're right near them. So it's a fantastic area. What's the impact of a company, a tech company, going public in an area like Raleigh, Research Triangle? I mean, it's a big deal when a tech company goes public in New York, right? <laughs> <laughs> because so, mon so many yeah. go with M&A and never make right. it to that stage. Right. Is it similarly different? My hope, so we actually asked ourselves, how often does this happen around here? And I think Red Hat was 10 years ago, mm -hmm. Channel Advisor was about five years ago, and so it doesn't happen very often in, in our region. And um, for our region and our area, what I get most jazzed about is we have within the company 25 young lions who are going to have, assuming we do well in the public markets and put this money to work effectively and grow, eventually they're going to have an opportunity to have risk capital coming from this harvest for another mission. So mm. imagine a Cambrian explosion of young lieutenants going out there and starting companies. That kind of bandwidth mafia, I would be 
most excited about in terms of yield in the local community. I take that as a reference to the PayPal mafia, oh, I, which, I which yielded Reed Hoffman, Peter Thiel, the YouTube guys. I mean, you can go on and on you can. with the you know Max Levchin, the the number of entrepreneurs who yeah. came out yeah. of just that Silicon yeah. Valley group. You're yeah. hoping for that kind of a that is such a novel Cambrian moment. And they talk about coaching trees, like in the NFL, you'll have. You know, any number that all of a sudden all these head coaches come from, PayPal is a perfect example. I don't think it's been replicated at that scale, and I do not mean to sound as if <laughs> we're going to have that. Oh, I, I forgot Elon Musk. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Right, right, the, the, yeah, the, right. The father. Right, yeah. So I have a hope and an ambition that that happens, but I dare not even come close to comparing to that amazing group of people. Mm. What's your biggest challenge now as uh, a leader and a company? Execution, we have capital. We don't, we don't have the excuse of saying, oh, we only generated 15 million last year. No, we gotta put money to work at scale now. And so execution risk is much more top of mind than competitive risk or technology change or regulatory headwind. Execution risk amounts to right people, right seats, right job, right mission, with resource, go. And doing that is the biggest risk. So what have you changed to get ready for that in this new season yeah. for bandwidth? We really did it before executing the capital strategy, which was identifying the market opportunity that fits our product and assessing the productivity on the sales desk and whether or not you can go from two strategic reps to eight and from 13 mid-sized company reps to 40. Do we have the people services team who can recruit and train at the right velocity? Do we have the sales leadership in place or do we in some cases need to add leadership before we start asking investors to believe us? So part of the fundraise on the public path was you can have confidence that we will take this capital and put it to work in people and here's why, here's the team. Hmm. Now let's hit the rewind button hard. Um, where'd you grow up? Where and did I grow up? Where'd you grow up? Um, Big family, small family? I'm one of four. Uh, born in Los Angeles, California. Uh, first Los Angeles, California? Yeah, Good Samaritan Hospital. All right, I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. And moved from Los Angeles when I was younger, probably around uh, seven or eight, to upstate New York, Houghton College. Dad was a teacher. From Houghton College, he moved to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and taught at Oral Roberts University, so I went junior high school at Jenks, Oklahoma, high school on Long Island at the Stony Brook School, <laughs> and then back to Oklahoma for undergrad at ORU, and then Notre Dame for law school, and then the Marine Corps, and uh, after the Marine Corps, Park City to start bandwidth, and then Chapel Hill, North Carolina since 2001. What's, what's the birth order in your family of four? I am second. My older sister, Laura, my younger uh, sister, Eva, and then Daniel, a Naval Academy vet. Um, was it easy to be second? I don't know anything else, <laughs> so that's a fair question, but uh, I grew up in an awesome, you know, very loving family, and my dad continues to bless me every day, and my mom continues to bless me every day, and so I'm very fortunate that way. What did your dad teach? He taught government, political science. Mm. Is that something you were interested in? It's my undergrad major. I'm obviously not doing a very good job of putting it to work, but... It was well, my major. <laughs> don't, don't companies get political? I, well, I hope not. I'm a fan of radical candor, which means you don't need to be political, just be on the merits. But if you mean politically internally, I hope not. I mean, I, I mean political perhaps, 
political has become like a bad word. Yeah. Uh, like Congress. Um, <laughs> <laughs> also a bad word. Bad word. Uh, I mean political in the sense of dealing with issues of power and how it gets used both yeah. internally and externally um, for the benefit of people defensively, sometimes offensively, yeah. if necessary. I mean, aren't companies political? You know, many, uh, particularly Silicon Valley companies, take political stances. And they, they want to require founders to declare value-based opinions as a prerequisite for engaging in trade. Mm. And I really believe that good business should be possible without you t uh, taking an affirmative stance on anything. So it, it bothers me when I'm trying to serve people that there might be a litmus test for me being welcomed into the marketplace hmm. based on an opinion I happen to have about education or healthcare or moral issues. I want to be a businessman. I want to do good business. I want to serve people. And if there's instead a gatekeeping function based on ideology, then I don't think, I don't think that's great capitalism. I think that's a problem. So explain to me the, the distinction, because you pointed out you do have opinions about things that get political. You've talked about education and how yeah. the level of debt that today's students are taking on yeah. is depressing their ability to take on risk yeah. and be entrepreneurial. Or, or, entrepreneurial. or, or even get married. Or, sure. You're yeah. right. Yeah, so I've definitely had opinions like that. So having an opinion and expressing it that way gets seen as being political. So what's yeah. the right way... Yeah. The fair way to be political, and what are you saying is unfair? I'm not too sure yet. I'm still figuring it out as well. But I have seen in the marketplace declarations of allegiance to key issues being made affirmatively. And if instead you don't take that public position, either as a company or a CEO, by your silence, you seem to be indicted if all you're trying to do is go about your business. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem for me. I think anyone doing good business in America should be permitted to do so, whether they worship the Quran or the Bible or the Torah and however they happen to feel about men's and women's roles, right and wrong, so long as they're obeying the law, they should engage in trade. And I shouldn't say, if you don't open your business on Sunday, I got a problem with you. Mm. Come on. I mean, from sea to shining sea, this should be a place where we're still allowed to be in the marketplace serving. And this has been a particularly big issue in North Carolina. It has. With the bathroom bill it and has. the. So, how do you navigate that? You say, um, for, for those contentious issues, keep them at arm's length? Yeah, I think that everyone should place a super high value on their private opinion and they absolutely have an opportunity to speak out as a citizen and an activist citizen and there's no problem with that. Corporations are in the legal system you know, defined as entities. So how are we supposed to think about a corporation taking a particular ideological stand? Mm. Um, I want Delta to get me to Raleigh tonight. <laughs> and how they feel about animal rights, I'm not really interested in. I want to make sure that aluminum tube packed with flammable jet fuel and a lot of people gets me there safe. And yeah. that's hard enough. Yeah. It's an interesting issue because uh, I'm a Christian, as I've mentioned at times on air on, on CNBC. Good for you. And that gets painted in a, in a certain light in our culture these days. I, I had Sanjay Poonin on from uh, now VMware yeah. 
in one of the early episodes Did you really? of this podcast. Fantastic. Yeah. And, um, He's over the top. Oh, yeah. Uh, somebody who I knew... Would speak. Before I knew that... Um, that he was going to end up at VMware, for for instance, we used to go to Got the same it. church. Fantastic. But it's it's complicated yeah. to be yourself right. as a person of faith right. in this environment, right. especially when um, political positions get ascribed to you sort yeah. of by default. Yeah. By well so said. so what do we do <laughs> <laughs> to get to a different place? where we can try to live out our, perhaps, personal convictions without, um, uh, w without this mess. I'm not even going to yeah. try to, to articulate it. No, I think exactly you articulated it well. And, and I don't know. I don't know. You have framed the problem, and I'm navigating. I'll give you a perfect example. All it's going to illustrate is that you've framed the, the question really well. I'm not sure it's going to illustrate an answer. But Obamacare comes out and it has an abortifacient requirement in it which says if you're an employee-sponsored plan, you got to pay for morning after pill, week after pill. If you're pro-life and you control a company, you're your founder, your CEO of the company, and you realize that this is a mandated plan and you're going to be paying for a procedure that you believe personally is immoral. What do you do? So we had to scramble to find a way to grandfather our pre-existing plan with our provider to avoid that problem. Now, since then, Hobby Lobby lawsuit got resolved, religious practice exception to the mandate. But at the time, if I, hadn't if I could not have found a way through that path, I was facing the prospect of having to give up the company. Hmm. And so you're framing the problem that uh, that we've experienced, and I'm not, I, I don't know going forward, I just hope that we all understand that business is business, and you should be, business is hard enough. <laughs> to make it also politics, which goes back to your original question, to make business politics, make politics is hard enough, business is hard enough, you start making, I mean, come on. What do you do about employees who wonder, um, will this be a place where yeah. I will get yeah. A fair shake. Yeah, so that is an awesome question. That's where, that's where it gets nitty-gritty. Yeah. So what do we do at Bandwidth? We celebrate Hanukkah with our Jewish friends at the company. If we're asked and we happen to do an id, Islamic celebration, and we honor that and make room for that in the workplace. We have a Christmas company dinner. But what everyone realizes, for example, when they see me be who I am in the workplace openly and not in their face proselytizing. I'm not at the office to preach. But when they see that I'm openly and authentically able to say I'm a Christian and love that you have a faith walk in your tradition and, and with your conviction, love it. And you shouldn't have to worry about that. So far in 18 years, we've been open and it's been wonderful. And, uh, and I hope to keep that culture. It needs to be a place where it's welcoming. And that includes, you know, all walks, all walks. And we've been really fortunate to have a culture that is vibrant. And I would like to think both loving and excellent and challenging all in the same kind of sentence. I think that being willing to invest in an extended conversation about these things is a key 
component of, of maybe moving past some of the places where we find ourselves stuck now. And the third, I think it was, episode of this podcast um, around Thanksgiving, I sat down with my cousin and his branch of the family uh, is Muslim. And my family, you know, this is on my dad's side. Yeah. I mean, his dad was a pastor. My dad's a pastor. Love it. I mean, his dad was a kind of firm, we'll, we'll say a firm-handed pastor who was not happy that his daughter had gone and married this guy who was a Muslim. <laughs> and so she, for a period of time, she was estranged from the family. Mm. When my grandfather passed, my grandmother brought her and her kids back in and made sure yeah. that during spring break, my brother and I would come to her house and get her, uh, to have a relationship right. with our cousins. Right. So we talked about right. that. You know, his practice of his faith, how he experiences this political yes. environment, how he experiences our family from the perspective of being a welcomed outsider in yeah. a way. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But some of what's missing, I think, in, in our broader conversation is, is the willingness to have that extended, uncomfortable conversation beyond tweets that's right. Beyond Facebook posts That's with right. likes and angry faces or whatever That's right. that, you know, yeah. hair trigger reaction is, can we care enough about the person next to us to engage over a period of time even if we don't agree? You're good at pointing out problems and defining them. A workplace that is welcoming can provide, perhaps, some of that context. So I've watched people learn about what Hanukkah is for the first time <laughs> in the office, right? <laughs> I didn't understand id, the EID uh, celebrations. I didn't know anything about that until I was asked to do it. Excuse me. Oh yeah, please. So you've done a lot of talking today. I've done you got to talking. Take a drink of water. <clears throat> Thank you. So it has been awesome to, in a workplace, see some of those extended conversations, and and I think you got to be fearless about it. Um, and we have been relatively. I want to talk a bit, because you, you've talked a bit about it, um, education and, and debt. Uh, I, uh, a few episodes ago, had on um, the co-founder and CEO of a company that's focused on education, helping employers to offer education as a benefit hmm. to employees. So mostly they're working with the likes of you know Chipotle, Taco Bell at this stage. But you know at all different education levels and allows the employer to offer this benefit and see how the employee is progressing, et cetera. What do you think for especially the workplace challenges that we face now with artificial intelligence, e-commerce, taking some traditional job categories, particularly for the lower and lower middle class, off the table entirely? What do we do differently around this education gap that's opened up and the difficulty that young people have getting the skills they're going to need? Will we be in a world in which the employer starts to be uh, not just provider of health care subsidy and benefit, but also education? And can we or should we engage earlier or in the context you just described if some folks have fallen out of the normal educational process, reintroducing them to that opportunity through the workplace. Mm -hmm. That it, if the US educational system continues to fail 
employers are going to pick up the pieces because you must have new, creative, educated, numerate, literate talent. And if you can't find it, but you can cultivate it from among your rank and file, uh, a good creative entrepreneur capitalist mm -hmm. will find a way to invest in that and get yield. And, but, but at the same time, it's a shame it's like that. Um, the debt loads coming out on top of those who have gotten educated, I think, are equally just anathema to a, to a good young professional life of any kind where you don't have any options. You can't afford to do anything but go for your max earning potential. That's all you can do. As quickly as possible. As quickly as possible. So yeah. I, I hate that. Um, if you fall out of the high school process in this information economy, what is the, what is the safety net if you're now working a nine to five at a Taco Bell and you can't go to night school on that? So if Taco Bell or somebody like that has a program that plugs you back in within the context of the work week, Mm, that has potential. Um, I, I tend to insert questions about education into the conversations we have on CNBC about broader policy. So when we're talking about uh, tax reform, yeah. right? Say, so, okay, you know, money to somebody up front right now is good, <laughs> especially if you know that person's in a lower economic bracket than they want to be. But our people are a national resource. And you know we have LinkedIn on, and they talk about how many jobs are open in these categories that they don't have available to fill because people right. don't have the qualifications and education level. Right. Shouldn't we be incentivizing investment in connecting motivated, capable people, connecting them to that resource? Maybe it's a political question. I was about to say, I got to <laughs> dust off my government degree. Um, I got to dust off my, my government degree, but here's what comes to mind. I heard Mark, Mark Benioff, you know, the Salesforce conference is the largest conference of its kind out in the valley. And Benioff was bragging about the Salesforce economy and how two of the top five jobs in that LinkedIn world you mentioned are Salesforce administrator jobs. Mm. And that's a certification. That's not a liberal arts degree. That's a certification for a very important but rather narrow technical skill set configuring and administering a software application for customer relationship management. But if you spent 18 months, two, month, two years engaged in that, um, you get a, you have an income level that's extraordinary versus a teacher or someone else. So what does it mean when a company can go over the top of the heads of the educational world directly to folks and say, you don't have to get an undergrad degree even. You can go straight into the Salesforce economy. I don't know if that's good or bad. I don't. But it's one of the stats out there that, that is, is fascinating because if I am talking to a high school senior that has strong STEM ability, but maybe less than required to prosecute an undergraduate degree, a Salesforce certification, while technical and narrow, provides income that is extraordinary compared to other alternatives. That's wild. Hmm. Now, what happens if Salesforce gets disrupted? <laughs> Two of the top five jobs, you would, you would assume those skills and those capabilities would transfer into lateral, you know, adjacent software platforms where you've got the ability to do identity management or whatever it happens to be. You would hope. Do they? I, 
I'm trying to remember the last time a large certification, like a Cisco certification, has been such a foundation for so many engineers and, mm. and or a, you know different certifications. They are valuable alternative credentials to a liberal arts four-year heavy debt load. They're an alternative you know, credentialing path to serious income. What type of worker is the hardest for you to find these days? The easy answer would just be software developer, but I'll, I'll qualify that. Hmm. Phenomenal software development leaders. That's okay. the hardest one. Who can motivate, incent, hold accountable software development teams who are, who are operating on an agile cadence, but awesome software development leaders? Oof, because you, I mean, that's. Uh, you've got to have so many cross-discipline capabilities to do that well. You've got to have people skills, technical skills, all kinds. We'll bring it full circle back to the Marine Corps. Yeah. Is there some element of those skills that you learned in the service that maybe workers are finding it difficult to pick up outside of that type of commitment? Mission. Mission. So in the Marine Corps, uh, you're given a mission. So you're a lieutenant, take that hill, that's the mission. You are going to take that hill if it costs you every single one of your people. It's not who wants to take that hill. No. <laughs> no. Who's taken a hill like that one before. No. It's, you will take that hill. And so the orientation around mission, here we are on November 10th, birthday of the Marine Corps, and we had on our calendar for approaching the public markets to find November 10th as our date to get here. That was months and months and months ago, and we did it. So we defined the line of departure and the mission to get it accomplished, and we nailed it. And in our company, we've got great leaders who own mission. And when you own mission, what suddenly becomes important is the welfare of your people because their readiness to accomplish the mission is your sole focus most of the time. Then you're on the mission, and it's all about achieving that objective, but you've spent so much time investing in your people, and we spend so much of our intellectual, mental, spiritual energy and getting our people mission ready. Mm. But mission ownership, the Marine Corps uniquely teaches because as you know, they are the first to fight. We, we joined because we are interested in dying, if that's what it takes. Mm. Mission is something that outside is hard to really understand as do or die, get it done. Very hard to understand, I think. Um, well, there's another group that understands it and those are missionaries. <laughs> And they also kind of get it. They're not mercenaries, they're missionaries, and they are dedicated. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, on being public and taking the next stage of this journey with bandwidth. Providence David. and perspiration. And thank you for the conversation. My thanks to David Morkin. I'm John Ford from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube, F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. You'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox or go to Facebook or Twitter or Periscope and search for John Fort and you'll know what to do from there. 
Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.